everybody, it's James Rudd here with The Heart Podcast and another COVID edition of the podcast. Uh, it seems like it's the only sensible thing to talk about right now. And now I have an interview with Dr. Umesh Gidwani, who is head of the uh, Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And he gives us an update of how they're coping over in New York uh, with the outbreak of COVID-19. And for reference, this podcast was recorded on the 25th of March. Hope you enjoyed the show. Perhaps we can start, Umesh, by having you introduce yourself for the audience, uh, who you are and uh, and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Umesh Gedwani, and I'm an intensivist who pretty much practices only cardiac work for the longest time. I'm the director of the cardiac ICU at Mount Sinai uh, Hospital in New York City, an associate professor of uh, medicine, that's cardiology, pulmonary, critical care, at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Rudd. And Umesh, maybe we can start by you giving the listeners an overview of how things are going for you at uh, Mount Sinai and in, and in New York more generally. Okay, uh, that is a great question. Now, the most important thing to realize here is uh, that this is a rapidly evolving situation. So if you'd asked me yesterday, my answer may have been different. What we have for now is that we are the epicenter of uh, this disease. And uh, there are many reasons why this may have been the case, but that is behind us now. Uh, the largest number of cases in this country are in New York. Uh, as of last night, about 31,000 in New York, about uh, 3,500 in New Jersey, about 2,600 in California, about 2,400 in Washington. Um, and then everybody else is in the mid-thousands, uh, the big ones being... Uh, Michigan with Detroit, uh -huh. Illinois with Chicago, uh, Florida with the Miami area, and uh, Massachusetts with the Boston area. But these are some very small numbers, you know, for instance, in Massachusetts, about 1,200 cases as opposed to about 31,000 in New York. So we're 10 times next to our closest neighbor, both literally and figuratively. Mm. So far, we have recorded 285 deaths. Okay. And um, yeah. how are you practically organizing your, your ICU teams to, to cover this, uh, the COVID-19 crisis? Right. So once again, that is a rapidly evolving scenario. Uh, very importantly, the leaders of the state, that is Andrew Cuomo and his team, and the leaders of our hospital, that is the CEO and the president and the CMOs, have been extremely proactive and have really followed uh, the statisticians and the disease modelers uh, to project demand and stay ahead of this thing. So when we started, it was pretty simple. Uh, let's, and so I have a 20 bed ICU, mm -hmm. the cardiac ICU. We said, okay, let's empty one half, you know, the south side of uh, the unit uh, because it's a dead end, cul-de-sac, and, and uh, 
Let's make that the COVID unit. Well, that was maybe 10, 12 days ago. Right now, the neurosurgical ICU with 18 beds is full. The cardiac ICU with 20 beds is full. The cardiac surgical ICU is being converted to negative pressure as we speak and will start filling later today. And there's another intermediate cardiac and cardiovascular unit uh, that is half full. And the only reason it's half full is because only one half has been converted to negative pressure. So we wow. have at present in just in the Mount Sinai Hospital, about, uh, I can be misspeaking because these are fluid numbers, somewhere between 40 and 45 people. Uh, and when I say I see you, these people have been vetted. Um, we don't uh, necessarily um, uh, take just sick people. We take sick people who require the ICU, the full spectrum of interventions, including you know being ventilated and uh, PEEP and all this kind of thing. We have a uh, um, six hospital system. Uh, probably about, uh, let's say, 3,000 or fewer beds. And as of last night, there were over 600 positive patients in our system with 123 uh, ICU-level patients. So this is a general overview. New York State, uh, about uh, 53,000 for us. Uh, uh, for the system, over 600. For the hospital, about 200. And this, as you say, is a rapidly evolving, daily changing target you're trying to keep your eye on, right? Yeah, it's uh, hourly changing. And there are uh, tele-meetings at all levels from this, you know, the state level uh, and the regulatory folks talking all the time. The CEO and CMO level talking all the time, the hospital presidents, and then the ICU docs, and uh, so on. And then Dr. Fuster holds his tele-meeting with the group. And so there is a lot of activity, and it's important to make sure that you don't uh, fall into the trap of just being in meetings and, you know, uh, really uh, share your uh, time and resource wisely. And how are you coping with things like personal protective equipment and having enough of that on deck and also staffing levels, as I guess some of your staff presumably have got sick with the virus themselves? Yeah, so once again, a lot of innovative things. Um, for now, I think we have enough um, PPE. Okay. The CDC recommends that COVID, test, uh, COVID patients be treated as if they have droplet precautions plus special contact precautions. Yeah. What that means is that uh, these particles are heavier and do not stay aerosolized or suspended in the air. So you don't need those N95 or greater respirator. Just a surgical mask should be enough. Then we wear an impermeable gown, uh, gloves, and cover your hair, and then put on a face shield. Okay. 
it is advised to have a separate set of shoes that you leave uh, at the hospital and uh, 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 scrubs that you wear in the hospital. And so my practice is, uh, you know, even if I come into the hospital with my shoes, I'll wear booties. They are not in short supply. Mm -hmm. In my room, I will change into uh, the shoes that I have for the hospital and into the scrubs. And I'm ready to go. And then before leaving, I reverse the whole, um, you know, process. And then at home uh, in a separate bathroom closest to the entrance in my house being the basement, which is right, uh, you know, there's a bathroom right by the garage. Right. We will shower. And then I will, you know, go back up into the house. And are you seeing any particular trends in terms of maybe some of the cardiac issues with these patients? Some other areas of the world have reported episodes of myocarditis or arrhythmias, particularly as patients are being extubated. Have you come across any of that or has it not been such an issue for you guys? We've come across it and it has not been such an issue. So during intubation, I've had, so we've done quite a bit of work now at the front lines and I can distinctly remember patients in whom I've intubated and extubated, and I suspect the sympathetic surge combined with the cytokine release and the damage it causes at the microvascular and and myocardial level uh, does predispose them to arrhythmias. Now, mostly I have seen atrial arrhythmias, and uh, once you intubate them and sedate them, um, now obviously this is not a prospective randomized trial. Yeah. I get good response with amiodarone. And another drug that cardiologists hate, which is digitalis. <laughs> but it's one of two drugs that we can use without affecting the blood pressure too much. But of course, you have to be careful especially with patients on hydroxychloroquine uh, with the QTC prolongation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And are you seeing any value in things like troponin testing or NT-proBNP testing, uh, echocardiography in your group of patients who are obviously on the ICU already? Right, so honestly, uh, you always see a troponinemia um, that is not particularly worrisome, and almost always you see an increase in NT-proBNP. The reason we are not following this closely is because we go by the clinical situation, and most of these people have a classic vasodilatory shock with a SERS type of syndrome. Yeah. If we feel that they may have a cardiogenic component, we would put on an echo probe, and quite honestly, just the local ultrasound probe, we don't bring in... Uh, some of these uh, very uh, uh, elaborate echo machines. It's just a focused Uh, echo, right? Exactly right, a focused echo to look at LV function. And then if something bothers us, we will call in, you know, a full echocardiogram. But to be perfectly honest, in the literally the tens of cases, uh, we've, uh, I can't say I've seen more than one uh, cold patient Um, And we've had a couple of patients who've had LVADs, and their LVADs haven't been a problem. You mean they had the LVAD prior to infection? 
Yes, indeed. Okay. Infection. So I suspect that's a risk factor rather than, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, a major problem. Um, so at this point, I must tell you that we are doing all kinds of stewardship. Stewardship of, in, uh, you know, uh, ordering tests. Yeah. Stewardship of PPEs. So we don't just follow these troponins and pro-BNPs and all. Uh, what we might do starting today or tomorrow is a cytokine panel. Uh, obviously, the Chinese uh, have reported an association between troponin and anti-pro-BNP and IL-6 levels and uh, mortality. But I'm not so sure that we are using that at this point uh, to um, fine-tune risk stratification. It becomes pretty apparent mm -hmm. uh, after you've been there with the patient for a day or two that, uh, you know, who's high risk and who's not. And are you part of any clinical trials at Sinai or, or using any um, experimental therapies right now? Yes. So there are plenty of experimental therapies. Um, a lot of companies have, uh, you know, smelt the need for, uh, you know, pushing their drugs out into the forefront, and there's no dearth of patients. Um, Cirilumab, which is a once-a-day IL-6 receptor antagonist, is running a couple of studies, one in moderate to severe and the other in mild to moderate uh, COVID disease. Um, Tocilizumab, which is another IL-6 receptor antagonist, three doses, is also running a trial. And a couple of other novel agents are being tried. Antivirals, remdesivir should be online. As a trial, they withdrew compassionate use, so that should go on. And then there are a couple of other things in the works that uh, I think is too prem premature to talk about right now. So yes, there are lots of trials ongoing. And finally, uh, Dr. Girwani, do you have any advice to, to hospitals or intensivist cardiologists who are a little bit behind you on the curve uh, in terms of preparation for this uh, tsunami? Yes. So, you know, our governor Cuomo put it best. He said, um, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, uh, to uh, blunt the curve and uh, right. to decrease the apex. He said, the way I see it, is this is a big wave front and it's going to hit us like a tsunami. And I think that's a fairly appropriate analogy. Now, our cardiology folks led by Dr. Fuster have really stepped up to the plate. They've signed up to be, you know, backup physicians. If you look at the Italian experience, they were using dermatologists and other people, right. whoever could, you know, had some medical background and could devote their time. Our cardiology fellows, which I guess is registrars for you, yeah. um, are um, now in the rotation as the supervising fellows. Um, and uh, because we were running out of intensive care fellows right. uh, and pulmonary fellows and uh, the uh, hospital and our critical care division has ramped up plans to train non-critical care, non-cardiology, non-pulmonary folks in uh, the basics of critical care 
as it applies to these patients uh, and the basics of other things, you know, such as ventilator strategies and so on. Yeah. Uh, the most of the learning is going to be done at the bedside. Wow. It really does show what a, uh, a way of uniting teams across the whole hospital spectrum this disease is. It really does tend to bring out the best in everybody, I think. It does indeed. And it's so interesting because uh, everything is forgotten and everyone comes together. Uh, and there is a certain uh, comfort in that. Uh, I must say that uh, we are using uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, both available on a hotline and locally, and then other chaplaincy and other interventions to modulate some of the stress and mm. distress that comes from this thing, which I suspect is very important as this uh, situation worsens. Another, I think that's very important, as you say, looking after your staff, right? I mean, this is uh, to, it's not going to go away for a few weeks. No, you have to look after your staff and never forget to look after yourself because this is a very stressful situation. Uh, I hope and pray that my friends uh, in England never uh, get to, uh, you know, uh, see this thing. And uh, if uh, Brexit was the worst thing to come out of this thing, <laughs> uh, maybe it was just fine. But honestly, this is, uh, this is uh, a horrible, trying time. But at the same time, it highlights uh, the beauty and sanctity of what we do as healthcare professionals. Well, perfect. That's a great way to end, Dr. Gudwani, with a message of hope for everybody. And I want to thank you very much once again for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Raj.